Romans chapter 2, verse 6 through 11. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. During the course of this sermon series, we are walking our way through Romans, where we see the gospel of our God and his righteousness being revealed. And over the next number of weeks, we're going to be in Romans chapter two and then to the beginning of chapter three. And the main idea of this chapter and on into the next is that there are none who are without sin and that there are none who are without excuse for their sin. So there are none who are without sin and God is just to judge all who are in sin. Or as one commentator puts it, human inadequacy in light of divine standards. Again, going to continue to call that quote to you. The, the theme of chapter two of Romans is human inadequacy in light of divine standards, the reality of fallen humanity and perfect divinity. Last week, I mentioned a diagram. And it's a diagram that is in our gospel partnership manual, and it comes from a book called The Gospel-Centered Life. It describes how the Christian life is bracketed by two things. And you can see the diagram here behind me this week. In the Christian life, we have two growing awarenesses, a growing awareness of the holiness of our God. And make no mistake, God is holy. He is as holy as he is, and he is perfectly holy. But the life of the believer is one of coming into contact with the divine, with the Holy One. And so we have a growing an awareness by his word, by his spirit, by his only ongoing work in our life. We have an awareness of the holiness of God that is increasing. And we have an awareness of the depth of our sinfulness. Make no mistake, we are as sinful as we are. And our sin is as wicked as it actually is. Lord willing, we are putting off sin. And and that's not just a Lord willing, man, I sure hope so. No, as the Lord wills it, we are putting off sin. And yet we are growing in our awareness of just how deep that sin runs and just how wicked, how righteous is the wrath of God upon that very sin that we are putting off. And so is there, there is a great chasm that opens up between the holiness of God and the reality of our sin. This is human inadequacy in light of divine standards. And as these brackets open up, we ask ourselves, what must I do to be saved? Is there any hope for a sinner like me in the presence of a holy God? And that's the moment that we're brought to in our celebration service when we come to the prayer of confession, where we've, we've held up songs that say that, God, you are glorious, you are great, and, and we've prayed, God, I'm not. Like very recently, <laughs> I've given evidence to the fact that I am not great. And we ask ourselves, is there any hope? 
Is there any good news? Is there any gospel for us? And so we move to the next thing, which is we open up the word and we hear the word read and we give attention and we open up the word and we say, pastor, speak to me of good news. Tell us gospel. There is perfect justice in God's judgment. I know it. And there is hope of a life that is transformed by the revelation of God's own righteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess it. You are holy. Great is your righteousness. Great is your holiness. Great is your perfection and all of your divine characteristics. Great is our inadequacy. We confess it. Lord, I pray that in this difficult text, we would see the beauty of your redeeming and transforming grace. And even as we see the beauty of your kindness, the lavishness of your love, we would also have a real awareness of the severity of your judgment and be warned for everyone that needs that warning today, that that warning would press on and your grace would enter in and we would be redeemed by the blood of the lamb alone. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your grace at work in the midst of the congregation this morning as we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we're actually going to go back one verse. Really, our, our passage this morning, it's part of an ongoing argument, so it shouldn't be taken in isolation. And one of the ways to help us not do that is to go back to verse 5, because verse 5 is really the opening of this part of the argument that he continues in verses 6 through 11 and onward, in which we see God's righteous judgment and that it will be revealed. Look at verse 5 with me. Because, But because of your hard an impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. I'm super creative in my points in these sermons, aren't I? Right? Well, I hope not. I hope I'm not super innovative and creative. I hope that what we see is the very words that are in the word, right? And what does is, what is the word want us to see very clearly and have pressed down upon us? This, God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, when we hear the word judgment, I know at least for myself, and I think probably for many of us here, when we hear the word judgment, we immediately think condemnation. But read it again. It doesn't say, hey, impenitent heart, you're storing up for yourself judgment. It doesn't say that, does it? It says, hey, Impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for when judgment is revealed. What are you storing up? Wrath, impenitent heart. What we're about to find out is that on the day of judgment, there is both wrath and there is life. On the day of judgment, there is both wrath and there is life. So if we go back to verse five, we see that God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And on that day, we will have revealed wrath and life. Let's go back and remember the flow of thought at the end of last week's message. 
In the present age, God's kindness and forbearance and patience have been revealed for the purpose of leading to repentance. That's verse four. Do you presume on the kindness and riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? What does it mean that God's kindness is revealed? What does it mean that God's patience? Well, every moment from the garden with the entrance of sin into the world through the sin of Adam and Eve, the just judgment upon sin has been death. You know that, right? The just judgment upon that very first sin and every sin since is death. And yet God in his steadfast love and mercy, or as verse five says it, the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, God in his steadfast love and mercy has passed over sin. We have many images of this kind of forbearance throughout the whole of the scriptures. We have the garments of animal skin that were given to Adam and Eve. And what were they given to do? They were to given to cover their shame. And then we have the wrath of the flood, right? We have wrath being poured out and yet a preservation of Noah and his family. There was nothing about Noah and his family that made them to where they could escape the judgment, wrath and death that came in the flood. But because of God's riches of kindness, forbearance and patience, he's doing a work of redemption and that family is preserved. And so is the whole of humanity in Noah. And then we have this image, the Passover, a pastor in which the angel of death brings judgment upon the whole of the land of Egypt, particularly the firstborn. But when that angel of death comes, he passes over the houses of the blood with the blood of the lamb on their door frame. And we have an image of death coming, but not falling on all. And then we have the temple worship with all of its regular sacrifices and particularly the day of atonement in which it says that sins are covered. That's steadfast love. That's patience and forbearance. All of this patience and kindness over the course of centuries and millennia culminates in the coming of Jesus, God, the son and his gospel. And it culminates in the son's sacrificial death and in his resurrection. So when Paul speaks of presuming upon the riches of God's kindness, ultimately what Paul is speaking about is making light of the redeeming and transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you see? It's not some generic general patience. It's specific moments of patience throughout history in that final forbearing moment of the cross. And we have a people who are making light of it, not taking hold of it, not walking in what it is to produce, which is repentance. By the time the time is coming, we're told in Romans 2, in which God's righteous judgment will be revealed in all its fullness, there will be no Noah family making it through and us wondering how in the world did that happen? There will be no Passover family because of a blood of a lamb and so on or a covering made through some temple sacrifice. God's righteous judgment will be revealed and it will be a final judgment in which wrath and life 
will be revealed. You see, we already glimpsed the wrath of this judgment. And there's a place in the scriptures that we see it better than the exodus from, from uh, or the, the removal from the garden or the Passover. There's a place that we have seen the wrath of the judgment of God in the cross of Jesus Christ. This is a place where the wrath of God worked all the way for the purpose for which it was sent. For those who place their faith in the sacrifice of Jesus on their behalf, if this is you, the wrath of God upon your sin has already been poured out. You see, the day of judgment has already come and the wrath has been revealed and it has fallen upon the Christ in your place. But for those who have not taken hold of Jesus by faith, they have not taken hold of his gospel of grace by faith, but pursue and persist in unrepentance. This same judgment that we glimpse in the cross of Jesus will be revealed upon their own soul. Do you see it? There is a way in which we can see. We have an account of the wrath of judgment in Christ. And for the impenitent, that wrath is being stored up. All of the horror that we see in the cross is being stored up for those who do not repent. The judgment has not yet been revealed, but Romans 2 is telling us it is being stored up. Man, I don't know if you got chills or not, but that's real. That is a powerful word. What follows in Romans 2 is a description of the righteous judgment of God. What ought we to do from what we already have this morning? What we ought to say that God's righteous judgment will be revealed. We ought to agree with the word. And we ought not to presume that the pattern of forbearance will continue unchecked by final judgment. In fact, in light of the cross of Christ, we ought to say, oh my goodness. When the day of wrath comes, it will be severe. And there ought to be a real fear of God in our mind, in light of the reality that forbearance will be checked and judgment will come. And here's what it says, verse 6, as we move into our passage this morning. Verse 6 says, he will render to each one according to his works. I want us to see clearly what scripture says. Look at that passage. It's a bit shocking, a bit jarring. What does the scripture say? The Lord will render. Friends, right at the front, we see this. The Lord is judge. He alone is the judge. There's not arguing on that day. There's not lawyers. There's not a debate. There's not a presentation of a variety of evidences and then an opportunity to stand up and give your defense. Now, he's the judge and he will render. Paul is pressing the point that is, it is the Lord's righteous judgment that will be revealed on that day and he will render his 
judgment. And there will not be anyone on that day that has any right to claim any error or any impartiality. Every mouth will be stopped because everyone will know as judgment is perfectly executed for the first time, by the way, in all of history, have we seen judgment in all of its fullness come down and everyone will say, that's what judgment looks like. That's real. That's just judgment. The Lord will render. And then it says that the Lord sees the works of each one. It says he will render to each one according to his works. Each one, each one will receive what is due him. Not what's due somebody else. Not what, not receiving some benefit from some heritage or some circumstance of birth. Each one will receive what is due him. And the judgment will align with these works. That's the very definition of justice to receive that which is due, the very definition of justice. And again, wrath or life. Wait, what's it say? He will render it to each one according to his works. Friends, up to this point, all I'm doing is I'm trying to pay attention. I'm not trying to hopscotch on to what I think is true. I'm not trying to sort of skip and jump my way to some sort of doctrinal foundation that I know I confess, because I, kn- I know what I confess by a, by a sort of a doctrinal and confession understanding of the faith. I know what I've read elsewhere in Scripture, and, I've, and I know how this fits together. I mean, I think, except for this passage right here, it says, he will render to each one according to his works. And I don't want to skip that. I want to sit in it for a second. And I know the question, what about the gospel? What about grace alone through faith alone? I confess this. Friends, we've sung it. We literally sang it. And it feels disorienting. We are right, friends, to prioritize grace. We are right to preach grace. There is a reason why this seems disorienting because this is generally not what is preached. But when you're making an argument for the justice of God, it has to be in there for the argument to be full and rich and to meet every single point. What we preach is grace upon grace upon grace by faith upon faith upon faith. But Paul is making an argument. Yes, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. And we're going to come back to the questions that are surely in each of our hearts and minds. But Paul is making a powerful argument in this chapter that, and we, he doesn't shave any corners. He doesn't cut off any edges of the argument. He presses the point and there is a judgment coming. That judgment will be shown to be perfectly righteous judgment. And every single human will have rendered in his judgment according to his works. I know this because it's what it says. That's all I've got so far in this passage. What Paul presents is a two-way judgment. There are only two results. The results are what align with what a person seeks. Look at the way it says it in the next verse, verse 7. He will render render to each one according to his works to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and on honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. 
But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And all of a sudden, like, yeah, you, you said that earlier, like the whole uh, impenitent one is storing up wrath. Okay, so that there's, I see where you're going with this, right? Seeking glory and honor and immortality on the day of judgment will receive life. Do you see there's wrath and life at stake? The self-seeking, not obedient to the truth, but unrighteous, receive wrath and fury. Every human who does evil, it says, tribulation and distress. Everyone who does good, it says, glory, honor, peace, shalom, true and perfect rest. I think the key word here is seek. What is it that one seeks. Well, in this passage, it has people seeking glory and honor and immortality and others seeking self that don't obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. What does one seek? Well, one seeks what one desires. One seeks what you think will satisfy. One seeks what is your hope and your treasure. Isn't that true? I mean, isn't that what the word seek means? These four verses make it clear that there are those who seek the things of God. There are those who believe as demonstrated by their actions that the way of the Lord is the way of life. They see it, they desire it, and they seek it. And the way you can see that they seek it is it looks like good. It looks like good in their life. And there are those who do not believe the truth. They still think that the way of self, that the way of the world, the way of the flesh, the way of unrighteousness is life, and they are wrong. You cannot serve both God and seek the things of this world. To do so is to presume upon the kindness of God. It is to presume that because God has not yet judged you in your unrighteousness, that you are not storing up wrath for when his judgment is revealed. It's to presume that you have life when you are pursuing not life. It is to presume that you have favor with God when what you, when what you pursue, what you want, what you seek, what you are satisfied by is self, the flesh, that which is evil. I'm reminded of the summary statement near the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what he says. In Matthew 6, 33, he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Seek the Lord, and all these things are added, glory and honor and peace, even eternal life. But the matter at hand is what? Seeking. But to continue in self-seeking unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury, tribulation and distress. Let me suggest this to you. And it's a beginning of a reconciling of some of what is surely in your heart, questions that are in your mind. Let me suggest that there is no redeemed life that does not seek the Lord. There is no redeemed life that does not seek the Lord. 
I said last week that we will misunderstand the purpose of Romans 2 if we don't remember that our passage this morning is the beginning of an argument and not the end of an argument. Right? We're in the middle of it. And if we walk away with a bunch of takeaways here in the middle of the argument, it's like listening to half of what someone says and thinking that you have the wisdom that they were imparting to you. Right? Paul's going somewhere with what he is saying here, and he hasn't quite gone there yet. If we were to stop reading at the end of verse 11, we might think that the application is something like this. In fact, it might be very tempting to preach this legalistically and compartmentalized and say, okay, doing good things gets good stuff, therefore, do good things. Go and be the church who does good things. So go, go do good works. The the whole of religion would become for you doing right things and then getting rewarded for it. Always you will be afraid, but I better not do too many evil works because I know what's for that. And this becomes the essence of legalism to stop in the middle of Paul's argument. But if we stopped here with this conclusion, we would be, listen, dead wrong. And I mean that. We would make a deadly, disastrous, wrath coming down in the end error. As the argument of Romans continues, Paul makes it clear that there are none who are righteousness. Go do good. And no one does. And heaven is empty. There are none who, through their own initiation, move from seeking evil, self-seeking, a putting down of the truth in disobedience, and move to seeking God. Here's Romans 6. and I encourage you, write Romans 6, verses 20 through 23 in the margin of your Bible here. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, you didn't. (laughs) But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? He's speaking to the redeemed. For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. Do you see it? You had a way that you were bound to. And that way ends when judgment appears with the storing up of wrath that that end was bound to. But God did something to set you free from sin so that you are now slaves to God. The fruit you get leads to, listen, no wasted words, sanctification that is being made Holy. Could have skipped that one, but he meant it. Not just to eternal life, but to being made holy. And its end, which is eternal life. You see, the wages of sin is death. You keep earning it, and it will be stored up for you. And when wrath comes down, death, but the free gift. You see, there's no earning it. There's nothing you can do in and of yourself to move from the reality of your pursuit of evil and all the wrath that is stored up 
No, you need gift, which moves you to eternal life, which is in Christ Jesus. And friends, that life begins with sanctification, which is itself a gift, that we are being made holy eternal life, friends. You can see it right here in this verse. It's culminating moment in the book of Romans. You were slaves to sin, seeking both unrighteousness and its end, but the gift of God is to set you free from sin and seek righteousness and its end, which is life. You're bound to God to seek sanctification and its fruit, eternal life. I love the way it says it, the fruit, which is eternal life. There's another place that we could have gone to first if we wanted to skip out of Romans, but let's, as much as we can, stay in Paul's argument. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Some of you are like, yeah, I thought he might go there. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. Not saved by yourself. That's God. It's a gift of God, not a result of your works. You weren't going along in works of unrighteousness, and you're like, I don't want to do that anymore. You were dead in your sins and trespasses, not of the reserve of your works that no one would boast. We are his workmanship. He took a dead thing, pursuing dead things, and made it alive. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The grace that forgives is the same grace that prepares a new way of good works in which we walk. The gift is not given as a result of works or it would be wage and not grace. There is not one who boasts that he was set free from sin because of his labor, because of his fortitude, because of his purity of his will. We were dead in sin and trespasses in which we once walked. No, the gift is to be set free from sin through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. So there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There is sanctification and life that awaits. The fruit of our previous way, our our self-seeking of unrighteousness in which we once walked is death. But the fruit of the new way, the way that we have been set upon by grace is life. We all once lived as sons of disobedience, Ephesians says, following the passions of our flesh. Do you hear that? What do we follow? Our passions. We followed what we wanted to. (laughs) We sought it because we wanted it. The passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. By nature, children of wrath. This is what we are. But God, because of the great mercy and love, we've been made alive together with Christ. What have we been made alive to? New passions. A new desire. A brand new love where there was no love for God made alive, not given future eternal life, made alive. We have a song that we sing at Cross Point Coast called Made Alive. Mama, sing that one a little different. (laughs) I'm not waiting to be made alive. Been made alive. Not still living a life suppressing truth, but made alive to the beauty of obeying righteousness. No, the redeemed by the blood of Jesus have been made 
alive. In summary, it is in salvation that the righteousness of God is revealed. It's in salvation. That is, he is just to save sinners because of Christ. It would just be patient forbearance and at the end of judgment, a pushover of justice, a miscarriage of justice apart from the grace of Jesus Christ who receives all of the just wrath in our place. But he did. He took it in the place of all those who believe that sinners become righteous. And this is from faith, from beginning to end. As Romans 9.30 and 9.33 say, righteous is obtained by faith. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You who believe have obtained a whole new life, a whole new desire, and it will be rendered to you according to the riches of his grace at work in you. There is a judgment coming. The judgment will be shown to be perfectly righteous. Every single human will be rendered in judgment according to his works. Believer, you have been redeemed from sin to righteousness. You have been delivered from death to life. Believer, when judgment comes, and it's coming, everyone, you've been cleansed of your unrighteousness by the blood of Jesus Christ. And you have been set free to a loving pursuit of the things of God, his kingdom, and his righteousness. Your sin is atoned for, believer, and your righteousness is secure. Here's how the passage here ends. It says this, very short little verse, verse 11. For God shows no partiality. And what Paul's doing in this verse is he's hopping back into his argument. He's saying something that moves his argument forward, and then he's saying how it connects to his argument. The purpose of the whole section of Scripture is this very thing. God's, God shows no partiality. Don't miss it. God's judgment is just. In judgment, he shows no partiality. Jew and Greek. Did you miss it? It was in here, right? It says there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. Friends, that's speaking of everybody. The religiously initiated, those who have been initiated with the truth of God and those who suppress it in unrighteousness. But for glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. You see, God is making a case that his judgment is perfectly impartial. It's perfect judgment. There are not two courtrooms, not two disparate conditions, not two avenues of justice, one for the religious initiated and one for the ignorant pagan. Judgment is impartial, and there will be none who are able to argue in judgment anything but that his impartial judgment is just. There is a beauty in this. I'm under the impression that we will yet write songs in the kingdom that is to come. And I think that when we see the beauty, the excellency, face-to-face, of impartial, impartial, perfect justice. 
we're going to write new songs with deeper clarity. And we'll sing them loudly because we'll say, our king, our master, our eternal redeemer, he's the just judge. And we saw it. And all of the angels of heaven will say, that's the just judge. Paul begins by setting up our passage this morning with verse five, and the wrath of God stored upon the impenitent, that is those who persist in unrighteousness in in spite of his kindness being revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are two things that I want to close our time with, and it'll take just a moment. The first is wrath stored up. I want to make sure that we understand the nature of God rightly. God does not have some reserve of anger seeking an object of wrath. It is sin that produces the righteousness of God's wrath, that produces God's righteous wrath. God is not the angry God of the mountain, fuming, looking for some outlet for his anger. It's sin that produces righteous wrath. It's impenitence that stores up wrath. The measure of God's wrath is perfectly in kind with the measure of the sin itself, perfectly equal, just in the scales. Not one ounce of wrath is stored up that will be wasted, that it will find a perfect complement in the sin for which it has been stored. God is storing up wrath in kind with sin. And when the time comes for judgment, that wrath will be poured out in perfect measure upon sin. When God's wrath is poured out, all of sin will be accounted for, and there is no further wrath that remains. Why did I smile? That's not good news. (laughs) That's not good news in and of itself. There's not one ounce of wrath will be left over when all of the wrath is poured out on sin. I smile because I know something, something that this passage has not yet highlighted. It gets there in Romans 3 and Romans 6 and elsewhere. I know that some of that wrath has already been poured out. So that there is, because that wrath has fallen on Christ already, in judgment on his cross, on the day of judgment, though I am not worthy of myself, I know there's no wrath that waits for me. God is not an angry God. God is not a God who has extra wrath laying around that hasn't already been poured on Christ for me. There is therefore tribulation and distress waiting for those who do evil. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I want to take you back to Romans 1. Romans 1 in verse 116, it says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. What is the power of the gospel for? For salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So there we are. Not only is judgment impartial, the application of grace is also impartial. For in it, that is the gospel, The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteousness of God is what has been revealed. And the believer can see it when you judge his life. The righteousness of God has been revealed not through the law, so that only the Jew would have access. 
the righteousness of God has been revealed through the gospel of Jesus Christ from faith for faith. We live by faith that in the gospel, salvation has been secured. The very power of God to forgive sin, to be saved, to be rescued. And in that salvation, we have been rescued to something, the righteousness of God. We live in the end and we live day by day by faith in the righteousness of Jesus Christ revealed. Righteousness revealed. And this is the second thing. The whole of Paul's argument deals with questions of righteousness. Are there any, are there any who are righteous? Is God's judgment itself righteous? What has been revealed? We've seen three things revealed in chapters one and two so far. In one seventeen. The righteousness of God has been revealed. In the very next verse, dealing with the Gentiles, the wrath of God has been revealed. And now, in 2.5, dealing with an eye toward the Jews or the religiously initiated, those who have even heard the gospel, he is saying God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This church stands in what is often called a Reformed tradition. That is, we see the sovereignty of God in salvation, and it's glorious, and we sing songs of praise in response. We see the sovereignty of God in salvation such that salvation is solely the work of God from beginning to end. Mankind, since the fall by nature, is dead in sin and unable to turn to God. We'll see as we study Romans that it is consistent with the teaching of the rest of Scripture. The redeemed are saved by grace alone and not by works. Redeemed by grace alone, not by works. All of mankind is dead in sin, period. This is our condition and our eternal condition left to ourselves. The only way to be made alive is by the grace of God. And this grace is received not by works of the law, but by faith alone. But if you do not listen carefully and submit ourselves to the whole of scriptures and its argument, particularly here, we'll find ourselves trying to... to Write something that is not wrong. We will start defending a stale, rigid doctrine. That, that's the very thing that Paul is warning us against. That, and he speaks of presuming upon the kindness of God. In order to maintain a stale, unbiblical understanding of grace, we are, will be tempted to invent a hypothetical possibility. We will try to invent a possibility that there is such a person, it's technically possible, according to the doctrines of grace, who has faith in Jesus to forgive his sin. And that faith in Jesus to forgive him sin, he is now cleansed and now has eternal life. And that same one continues to love the world and has only selfish desires as his moral guide. You can see the error, right? It is an effort to maintain the sure hope of grace received with faith while requiring no works for the one who has claimed to desire God. It doesn't work. The defense fails. In an effort to defend a stale doctrine, the defense 
fails. Friends, this is not faithfulness to any doctrine of faith alone. It's to deny the power of God for salvation. The power of God, right? Do you remember that? It's been like a year since we looked at the power of God, leverage the very right, strong arm of God, leverage for salvation. And what does he get? A bunch of people who get to be saved and do whatever they want. That doesn't sound like the power of God to me. What we have is the power of God, leverage for salvation, making the dead alive and lovers of his good way. You see, Christ died while we were yet sinners. And grace enters into the one who is dead in sin. And faith is granted as a gift to the one who was previously self-seeking. And all of this is apart from any works done by man. And when grace comes, and when sin is forgiven, eternal life is secure, and the way of righteousness is opened up to a heart that loves God. And he who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. What man can take hold of the power of salvation? Behold the righteousness of God and and yet live in self-seeking unrighteousness. It doesn't work. The righteous will live by faith. Live day to day alive by faith in this grace, from faith, for faith, from beginning to end and through and through. The same faith by which you first believed is the same faith by which you live in the righteousness of God. Look at Romans 2, 4, one more time. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. This most clearly describes the atoning work of the gospel. That is the death of Jesus on the cross in the place of sinners, where God pours out his righteous wrath and fury, bringing tribulation and distress on the Messiah. It's the pinnacle image of loving kindness to which every other forbearing patience of the Old Testament points. The act of grace is given to lead you to repentance. And the argument of Paul is only clear in light of a full view of grace grace as the cross looms large. God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This ought to bring a severity to our attention. We are right, friends, to read this passage and respond with a fear of the Lord. Don't skip it. Don't start running ahead, hopscotching over what God has for us here. You are right to fear the Lord. And if you have not turned in faith-filled repentance to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin, you are storing up wrath for yourself. Do you hear me? You This morning's message is for you. Turn away from the things of the world. Don't walk away and say, I'll do better next time. No, you won't. Tried it. Turn in faith to Jesus. There is no hope for you here in this world or in yourself or in your own will 
but there is perfect and sure hope for you in Jesus Christ. Perfect and sure. And hear this. Not only will you be rescued from the wrath of judgment, but you will be rescued from the power of sin in your life so that you will seek the things of God which bear the fruit of life. Friends, included that is repentance. A life lived in a growing awareness of the depth of our sinfulness that turns in repentance to the grace of God. For the one who knows the truth but continues in unrighteousness. It might be tempting to skip that one, but that's who it's written to. You know the truth. Friend, you are right to fear the Lord. There is an intentional warning in this passage for you who are religiously initiated. And as I know this church, many in this church, many here are religiously initiated. And I wonder, at some point, have you become inoculated? Do you presume on the kindness of God while continuing to seek the things of this world? That's not faith. It's actually Romans 1. It's the suppression of the truth. Today is for you. Today is the day to lay down your presumption and turn for the first time in true faith. God, you alone save. Be my delight. And for the believer this morning, you too are right to fear the Lord. He's still the Lord. He's still the righteous judge. Nobody stands before a judge and says, I got this. He's still the Lord. He's the holy and righteous judge of all mankind. But you are right to love him. You are right to give thanks to him. Romans 8, 14. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you have received the spirit of adoption. You belong to him by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Heavenly Father, our Father. What a glorious thing to look at the judge and see dad. And to know that we have been born outside your household, but brought in by grace. And we have fellowshiped at the table with dad. So as scary as it is to be in the room when that day comes, we know how it works. I pray that there would not be one here that does not cry out by your spirit's work and the gift of faith today. Father, Lord, forgive, transform, redeem, and bring about the beautiful fruit of sanctification, which is eternal life. Thank you, Lord, for the secure, sure hope that we have in the fullness of the riches of grace that are in Christ Jesus. We pray in that name and in no other. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray, amen.